Hey, it's LLSA 2022. We've been doing this for a number of years where we give you the short to the point uh, summaries of what you need to know for LSA. I'm very excited. I'm here with Dr. Professor even Whitney Johnson. Thanks for playing, Whitney. Hello. This is going to be a lot of fun. So the key thing here is, and I say this every year, listen to this audio a couple of times. Go and do the practice question test that we've made. Go and do those practice question tests. These highlight all the important things you need to know. Then go take your tests. And I'm not going to guarantee you a pass, but I'm pretty damn sure you're going to pass because we've scoured this literature. We've pulled out the most important stuff. So uh, let's do this thing. You ready? Let's do it. All right. First paper I'm going to do is, did this patient have cardiac syncope, the rational clinical examination? It's from JAMA. And obviously, this is something that comes up all the time. Person fell over, they fell out, whatever term they use in your part of the world. And you have to try and work out, is it cardiac, therefore bad, therefore probably needs admission versus non-cardiac. So they did a systematic review of hundreds of papers to try and determine this. And they said features associated with cardiac syncope include age over 35, very unfortunate for some of us, history of atrial fibrillation, known severe structural heart disease, this all makes sense, inability to recall events, witness cyanosis, there is a bunch of tests you could do, but they say in this summary that none of them are ready for prime time yet. And some of these scoring systems also look good, like the EKG SYS and the VSS scores. They say in general, don't use biomarkers. And obviously an abnormal EKG is a high risk feature. So if you're old, if you've got no coronary artery disease, you've got an abnormal EKG, obviously these are higher risk features. But what else? Did you get anything else out of that one, Whit? No, um, I'm glad that we went over this one because it's always the question that I have. Should I be concerned about the young chick at the party festival's syncope episode that she had? <laughs> Probably not. So good to know. All right, you get the next one. All right, so paper number two, a multi-center randomized trial to evaluate chemical first or electrical first cardioversion strategy for patients with uncomplicated acute atrial fibrillation. This one was in the Academy of Emergency Medicine in 2019, and essentially study was performed at six urban Canadian EDs because the Canadians give us all of our information and risk stratification mm-hmm. tools. So uh, patients that they looked at, ages 18 to 75, uncomplicated atrial fibrillation for less than 48 hours, and you had to have a CHADS 2 score of 0 to 1. And they essentially put these patients into randomized groups, either chemical-first cardioversion with procanamide or electrical cardioversion. They're shocking you right off the jump. 84 patients were in this, and they looked at how many patients they could discharge home within four hours of arrival in the emergency department. That was the primary outcome. Secondary things being like your total length of stay, adverse events, and any bounce back within 30 days, revisits, hospitalization, strokes, death. And ultimately, the main thing to know here, both strategies actually worked. They were well tolerated in this population. But if you're trying to get this patient out of the emergency department, electrical first approach was superior with faster ED discharge. It was like three and a half hours if you shock them, five hours if you try the chemical cardioversion first. All the patients did go home. That should be noted. 99% left in sinus rhythm and no real serious events in either group. But when in doubt, light them up. Excellent. So again, this was a low-risk group of patients with a low CHADS-VAS score and uh, tastes great, less filling, and they got out of the emergency department one and a half hours faster. In most of the emergency departments that I've worked in, one and a half hours is nothing. That's how long it takes to do the discharge instructions. But anyway, if you're in a real hospital, you can get them out faster. Right. I didn't know you can triage somebody in one hour. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's crazy. The next one is the PEGD 
study investigators diagnosed a pulmonary embolism with D-dimer adjusted to clinical probability. This is a big one. This is huge. New England Journal of Medicine. So in the past, it used to be said, we can only use D-dimer for low-risk patients. And that was a problem because there's a lot of patients that are sort of medium risk that would love to use a D-dimer for. So this was a retrospective study, included over 2,000 patients. They followed them for three months. And they said, if you're low risk and have a D-dimer of less than 1,000, or moderate risk and a D-dimer less than 500, we can rule out PE. So what they did is they took all these patients, they did a modified well score, and they found that this actually worked. So if you're in a low pretest group and your D-dimer was less than 1,000, it ruled out PE the vast majority of the time. Now, if you're in a moderate risk group, they actually took that D-dimer down to 500. So you had to have a, a much smaller D-dimer. And if that was negative and your moderate risk, that also ruled it out. This is not a definitive study. This was retrospective. We would like to see this reproduced in other studies, but it does suggest that you can move down that D-dimer number to 500 in moderate risk patients and safely rule out PE. That is huge because that is a big group of patients. Okay, the next paper is randomized trial of three anticonvulsant medications for a status epilepticus. This was brought to you by our investigators at NET and PCARN in the New England Journal of Medicine from 2019. So randomized blinded adaptive trial, 384 patients they looked at, and really what they were focusing on were the medications in cases where you've got a patient in status epilepticus that was not responsive to benzos. So they looked at levetiracetam, phosphanitoin, valproate, mixed up the groups for all three of these, and essentially were looking at the absence of seizure at 60 minutes and improvement in your level of consciousness without any additional drugs after giving these second-line drugs. Main thing here, big bold picture, is that each drug resulted in stopping the seizure and improving a level of consciousness at 60 minutes in about 45% of your cases. So they all kind of perform the same here. They had similar adverse event rates overall, but I guess one thing to note would be that there were more deaths in the group that got the levotiracetam and more hypotension in the groups that got phosphany. And so overall, I think really the big picture here is that don't lose sight of the, the benzos as your first line, no matter what, right? Initial dosing of benzos are key here. Max those out first. Benzos, benzos, benzos. And then pick your poison as far as your second line goes because they perform the same. And just to highlight that for some reminders, lorazepam, 10 milligrams IV. Max that out before you try to move on to the second one. You can also consider using diazepam, 10 milligrams IV or rectally. And midazolam, 10 milligrams IV or intramuscular. Yeah, that's a really important point. First of all, maximize your benzo. So lorazepam is the one that's used a lot here in the States. So that's 10 milligrams. And a lot of the time, the initial dose is five milligrams. So then repeat it before you start to these second line things. And they were all the same. And that was their conclusion. But like you, with the one thing that really stuck out to me was that the levotiracetam, Kepra, had a higher death rate. It didn't reach statistical significance, but it's a bit concerning. We want to see that in a bigger study because we don't want to be killing our patients. Otherwise, it looked like a really great drug. It had less hypotension, all this stuff, but that was a bit concerning. Their conclusion, they're the same. I'm a bit concerned about that levotiracetam. Yeah, it was kind of weird to me too. It was similar adverse event rates, but <laughs> more death here. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, what that tells you is that, uh, you know, you need a much bigger study, more power to see if this was just a random thing, and it probably was, but uh, a little bit concerning. Anyway, they said they were all about the same. Let me do the next one. This is Imaging and Suspected Renal Colic, a Systematic Review of the Literature, uh, multi 
specialty consensus annals of emergency medicine. I really like this because this got a whole bunch of experts in emergency medicine, in radiology and neurology, and they sat them all down and they said, ladies and gentlemen, read all of these papers, and then we're going to present to you a number of clinical scenarios and see if we can come up in sort of this modified Delphi technique about what you would do in each of these scenarios. We're not going to go through all the scenarios. There were 29 of them. We're not going to go through them. But I thought that the key things were that if you're young, with no prior renal colic and there's nothing else going on, you could do a point-of-care ultrasound. And if there's no hydronephrosis, basically be done. That's what I took away from that, which is good. That's a lot of people. For older patients, though, they sort of swung the other way. So if you've got the 75-year-old, the 80-year-old that comes in with vague belly pain, but it looks really like renal colic, they're like, hang on a minute here. The differential diagnosis includes lots of bad things. You should probably CT scan that person with contrast today. Make sure you've got the right diagnosis before you turf them and get them follow up because it could be a AAA or something else bad. They also said that the ladies, unfortunately, because of your anatomy, it makes it a little bit more complicated. And so a lot of their <laughs> respondents, experts said, you know, I'd throw an ultrasound on the, the women a little bit more frequently for the, you know, the ovarian pathology and stuff, which can really mimic uh, renal colic. And when the diagnosis was unclear, they really, most of the experts said, look, we like low-dose CT scanning if you can do it. And uh, in patients with stents, slapping an ultrasound on there to make sure they don't have uh, hydronephrosis is also a good thing. So the key thing is where this has moved is less is more. We want to do less and less imaging. And if you do images, do it with ultrasound. But don't forget, old people are trying to die. So scan them before they die. Yes, that's what I really like about this paper too, is whenever I have a resident that's like, oh, I'm getting the CAT scan so that I can prove that they have a kidney stone. And my response is, no, you're getting the CAT scan because it's an old person and we're looking for other things but the kidney stone. Excellent. All right, next paper, clinical practice guideline for emergency department procedural sedation with propofol. This is the 2018 update that was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2019. <laughs> so um, this is an update from the ASEP practice guidelines from 2007, looking at the administration of propofol for procedural sedation. This was made using a panel of experts from the emergency department, and they basically cruised through all of the literature from 2007 to 2018 to kind of give us some updated practice guidelines. Overall, the biggest suggestions from the panel are that propofol is the go-to sedation if you're trying to do moderate conscious sedation in the emergency department. It's great. It's fast. No fasting required, which I thought was great because all of my patients have at least one turkey sandwich in them. Um, <laughs> be careful in the dosing when you're looking at the very old and the very young patient. Always have a colleague by your side. So use the two clinician team whenever you can. And big key features here are in looking at the dosing. So let's make sure we get this right. Adult dosing, 0.5 to 1 mg per kg. If you're looking at older patients, drop that down a bit. Go 0.5 mg per kg in the elderly. And then that's your initial dose. You can subsequently repeat doses at kind of a half step down. So 0.25 to 0.5 mg per kg every one to three minutes as you need while you're doing the procedure. Got it. What about the pediatric dosing? Because there's a difference in pediatrics. Yes, kids are always an enigma to me. So pediatric dosing, noteworthy thing here is you actually take it up a step in your first dose. You go two megs per kg in your pediatric patients that are less than three years old for your initial dosing. 1.5 mg per kg if they're older, and this is for the initial dosing. And then your additional doses are at 0.5 to 1 mg per kg 
every one to three minutes as you need it until you get done with your procedure. So note here, higher initial dose in your peds patients and then higher subsequent dosing than the adults. Got it. Last couple of things that they just noted, make sure your patients have continuous cardiac, capnography, and pulse oximeter monitoring. Get some supplemental O's on them during the process. Use lower doses in the obese patients. So focus on using like that lean body weight dosing there. And then if you're thinking about the addition of ketamine, which I love ketamine, if you're thinking about throwing that on or opioids, can be useful. So are those painful procedures because the thing to note here is that propofol gives you amnestic effect, but no analgesia. So be nice to your patients. That's great. Yeah. So let me emphasize that uh, pediatric dosing is uh, higher initially, higher subsequent. And for painful procedures, remember propofol makes you fall asleep, but you're going to wake up real sore unless you add some ketamine or opioid or some other thing. Okay, so the next one is cerebral intraparenchymal intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Try and say that after a few tequilas. A review, JAMA, <laughs> and I've had a few. Uh, April uh, 2019. <laughs> we know that intracranial hemorrhage is bad, and um, in these cases, it's primary most of the time. You've just got like vessels that are weak and they break. There are a lot of secondary causes as well, though, right? So if you've got a coagulopathy, if you've got a, a cerebral venous thrombosis, if you've got an AV malformation, infection, you get it from all these things. So a bleed is more likely in that patient who comes in with a stroke. I always love this. Like trying to work out that patient comes in and they've had a stroke. I'm like, is it going to be a bleed or is it going to be an infarct? They say it's more likely to be a bleed if they're altered, if they've got headache, and if they've got nausea. And the treatment for these patients is if they've got a really high blood pressure over 150 to 250 millimeters of mercury, you get their blood pressure down to about 140 systolic. What's interesting to me is that a lot of these treatments actually aren't necessarily proven, but this is what they're suggesting. If you're on an antiplatelet agent, this is a really big one. Don't give them platelets because there's actually now one big study that said they actually do worse for reasons that are not clear to me. So you're on the clopidogrel, for example, you're like, oh, I'll give you fresh platelets so that you can clot. It didn't work. It actually made them worse. If you're on an anti-vitamin K anticoagulant, like warfarin, for example, then obviously give them vitamin K, but they also suggest that you use these protein concentrates, PCCs, Activated factors in general don't work. So these activated factor 7 and activated 12 and activated 55 or whatever it is, generally they haven't been shown to improve outcomes in these patients and in fact make people worse because they induce thrombosis in lots of people. Surgery in some cases help and stroke centers certainly help. So the key thing is reverse their anticoagulation, get their blood pressure down. Don't use platelets in those patients on antiplatelet agents. It doesn't help. Next paper, clinical policy, critical issues in the evaluation and management of adult patients presenting to the emergency department with acute headache. So basically, these are some ASEP guidelines on acute headache that were in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2019. Big literature review, looked at some very specific stuff. Four questions I wanted to highlight here. First one being, in adult ED patients presenting with an acute headache, are there specific risk stratification strategies that reliably identify the need for neuroimaging? So basically, how do you risk stratify to avoid CAT scan or to CAT scan? And the answer is yes. We've got the tools. We know about them. It's the Ottawa subarachnoid rule. Shameless plug here for the Corpendium calculators because we have that rule. So if you can't remember it, pull it up on Corpendium in your app and take a look. Question number two. In adult ED patients treated for acute primary headache, are non-opioids preferred to opioid medications? 
No brainer here. Uh, answer is yes. <laughs> we really like to focus on using things like naproxen or sumatriptan for the reduction of headache at 48 hours. So try, you know, your headache cocktail, pick your poison there, but try to stay away from opioids, which I always tell my residents to do because opioids actually cause rebound headaches. So try to forego that. Question three, in adult ED patients presenting with acute headache, does a normal non-con head CT performed within six hours of headache onset preclude the need for further diagnostic workup for subarachnoids? So basically, if a patient presents within six hours of onset, are you non-con head CT and done? Yes. This is a less than 1% miss rate here. So if you get them within that six-hour range, you're good with just the, the non-con. Question number four, just to piggyback off question number three, in the adult ED patient who is still considered to be at risk for a subarachnoid after you got the negative non-contrast head CT, is the CTA of the head as effective as LP to safely rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage? 1% miss rate of non-con head CT if you've got ongoing suspicion, LP or CTA is fine. There was no clear choice. They just kind of looked at it. They did highlight some things as far as the LP being more time-consuming, having a high rate of inconclusive results, higher potential for a traumatic tap that you can't really interpret, you know, some of those things. But ultimately, when you look at them against each other, one did not outperform the other. So dealer's choice there. I don't know. Dr. Herbert, you got a thought on that? No, not really. Uh, they do, you know, like I say, they note that LP takes a while to get set up and you can have a lot of traumatic taps. And But, you know, there's also problems with uh, CT angiogram. I, I think in the end, there's just not enough data yet to know what to do. I think the key thing, though, is they're really pushing that first six hours. You've got a good exam with a CT scan and it's negative. You're pretty low risk. You're not zero risk, but you're pretty low risk. But you don't want to be doing a whole bunch of CT scans because they don't talk so much about it. But there's a whole bunch of people who have these little aneurysms that don't need anything done. And that's and the whole other issue. So don't scan everybody. Let's talk about breastfeeding. Managing the breastfeeding patient in the emergency department. I found this actually extraordinarily useful because it answered a whole bunch of questions I did not know the answer to from the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2020. Here's sort of how I thought about this during my career, and it's completely wrong. If in doubt, <laughs> pump and dump. If in doubt, uh, the baby's going to die, mum's had some meds, and the baby's going to die, just throw the milk away. And they say that's kind of how everybody thinks, but it's really, it's too conservative. And this can really screw up uh, the mother and the child and the, the breastfeeding, which can be a real issue for a lot of people. So the first thing they say is that there's a whole bunch of safe medications out there. Acetaminophen, non-steroidals are safe in breastfeeding. Unlike sort of in pregnancy where you're a bit more concerned about non-steroidals in breastfeeding, they're fine. When it comes to opioids, they think fentanyl and morphine are the preferred IV opioids. When it comes to PO opioids, hydrocodone is the one they like. They do not like oxycodone. They do not like tramadol. They do not like codeine. They prefer hydroxycodone. Fentanyl, midazolam, propofol, atomidate for sedation are all okay in the breastfeeding mum. So once mum wakes up from the procedure, as long as she's awake enough to hold the baby, if they've had one of these meds, then they can breastfeed. This is not an issue. Ketamine, they said though, we don't have enough information, so we can't give you any recommendations there. Here's a big one. If given a breastfeeding mother a CT with contrast, can they breastfeed? The answer is yes. There might be a little bit of stuff that comes into the breast milk, but it's not a big deal. And that is also true of gadolinium. And I didn't know that. So if you've done MRI with gadolinium, again, no restriction on breastfeeding. Now, the nuclear studies are a little bit 
of a different story. The nuclear studies, yes, some of that radioactive stuff can get into the breast milk, but they don't actually say you need to throw that milk away. You can actually just wait. So I would just look this up because it's going to get complicated or ask the radiologist. But generally, if you just sort of sit it there, then the radiation magically disappears over hours. But look that up. And most infections do not require the pausing of breastfeeding. The one big one, though, is Ebola. If you've got Ebola, no breastfeeding. And a final paper, 2019 American Heart Association's focused update on pediatric advanced life support. This is an update to the AHA guidelines for cardiopulmonary resuscitation and emergency cardiovascular care in the pediatrics journal. So this was a huge review looking at all the literature for pediatric resuscitation. And from that, they kind of compiled some new recommendations, three of them of which I'm going to highlight are pretty straightforward in saying, in route to the emergency department, your medics are okay just doing BVM ventilation. That's acceptable to continue rather than attempting to do an intubation or secure a more advanced airway. Anatomy gets funky. They don't always intubate kids all the time. So just safest thing is to ventilate that kid with a BVM as long as that's working. Just drive, get them to the hospital. Recommendation number two is on ECMO. And this basically states that it should be considered for patients who have an arrest in the hospital and have a cardiac diagnosis. So Get the ECMO team involved pretty early on that if you have those capabilities or start looking for transfer early. And the third recommendation was about targeted temperature management, which they, again, we're focusing on this in the pediatric population, the neonates up until 18 years old. And what they recommend is your targeted temperature management in patients that remain comatose after resuscitation, still reasonable to do this. So what they were saying was that there are two strategies that you could use for this. Could take them down to hypothermia at 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for 48 hours, followed by bringing them to normal thermia and maintaining that at 36 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. Or just keep them at 36 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. Use your continuous core temperature monitoring in these cases. And there you go. Yeah, so this is changing you know, the pediatric literature here lags behind the adult literature. The adult literature now we're basically saying, just don't let them get febrile. We don't need to drop their temperature very much. Just don't let them get febrile and use continuous core temperature monitoring. And I'm sure, because I find these a little bit funny. Yeah, you can do hypothermia or you can do normothermia. It's like, okay, which one? They're like, you can do either. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but the key is just continuous monitoring. Don't let them get febrile. That's it where we did it in about 25 minutes. Oh, you're a legend. Look at you. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, God. So again, go listen to it again. Now go to the question bank that we did. And I'm not saying these are the best formatted questions in the world, but they're really good questions. And then they've got explanations to really highlight the key teaching points. And then I think you're going to kill your LLSA 2022. Go team. Herbert out.